Welcome to the latest episode of the Red Star Radio podcast, which is brought to you by the Marx Engels Institute. Today is a special episode of the program in that uh, I am going to be looking at the state of play when it comes to a particular aspect of British politics, and that is, of course, the old favourite, the perennial question of the Labour Party. More specifically, I'm going to be making a couple of arguments. Firstly, that there must be absolutely no question of anybody who considers themselves to be any kind of socialist of voting for the Labour Party, whether it is led by Keir Starmer or somebody who's more to the left of him. It is a complete dead end of a party for the British working class and must be relentlessly exposed as such. Secondly, and this is a more broad point, it is that the whole question of what he's referred to in Britain as laborism needs to be addressed. And that is a question of how relevant or how useful it is to try and recreate another version of this peculiarly British form of social democracy. But we'll begin with the more directly applicable points, which is, of course, concerning Keir Starmer himself and the modern version of the Labour Party. Now, to start off with a statement that I'm going to be justifying throughout the next hour or so, and that is the following. Keir Starmer is not a betrayal of the Labour Party tradition. He is not a betrayal of the traditions of the leaders of the Labour Party or its parliamentary grouping. He is completely in line with all of the Labour Party leaders, with the possible exception of Corbyn, but he didn't last too long and was disposed of fairly easily in the end. But every other leader of the Labour Party stands alongside Keir Starmer in the same tradition. And this is something that needs to be spelt out. Tony Blair was not a betrayal of the Labour Party tradition. He was a direct continuation of it. No matter what he and his advocates or his inner party opponents might say, he was completely as one with Ramsay MacDonald, with Clement Attlee, with Hugh Gateskill, Harold Wilson, Jim Callaghan, Neil Kinnock, John Smith. Tony Blair was a continuation and represented broad continuity with all of them, as does Keir Starmer. The one that stands slightly outside of these traditions is Corbyn, and he was the exception rather than the rule. So what you need to bear in mind is that when you hear somebody saying that, oh, Keir Starmer's a betrayal of this, that, or the other of the Labour Party, no. He is exactly what the Labour Party has always been. It's just that in the modern era, when British capitalism is even more degenerate than it has been for many years now, then the degeneracy of its advocates becomes more obvious. So what do I mean by the fact that Keir Starmer is completely in line with Labour Party traditions? Well, first of all, he says that he is himself and he isn't actually lying. When Keir Starmer says that he is uh, honouring the traditions of the Labour Party in his enthusiastic and wholehearted and probably quite genuine endorsement of NATO and the war in Ukraine, and everything else that goes along with it, he is telling the truth about that. He is absolutely within the Labour Party tradition in advocating for all those things. Because as Starmer himself points out, 
Of course, it was a Labour government that founded NATO, that was one of the most enthusiastic proponents of NATO, because it was led by two men, and certainly in the term in terms of foreign policy, it was led by one man, which was a man named Ernest Bevan. Now, Ernest Bevan was a bastion of the very right-wing leadership of the Transport and General Workers Union. He was Minister of Labour in World War II and uh, made sure that any and all strikes uh, across the country were rapidly crushed. The man was an enemy of the working class, and often the most bitter enemies of the British working class have been serving or former trade union leaders. And he was a rabid anti-communist, a man who was even more rabidly anti-communist than even somebody like Churchill himself. And, of course, he was a rabid imperialist, as much as Churchill himself. He was absolutely insistent that the British had to get the nuclear bomb in order to better defend the empire against the communists. His precise words were, we've got to get this thing over here and we've got to stick a bloody Union Jack on it. That's a direct quote from his time as Foreign Secretary. And when Keir Starmer says he's in that tradition, he's absolutely right, he is. Because the Labour Party, from its right to its left, has always been a pro-imperialist, anti-communist party. And the failure of many people, including the old Communist Party of Great Britain, to realise that fully, the full extent of that anti-communism and that pro-imperialist mentality, has caused no end of problems for the British working class movement over the last hundred years and certainly since World War II. And when Keir Starmer says that he's exactly in line with Labour Party tradition in terms of his approach to industrial relations, where he's wholly on the side of the British capitalist class, again, he's telling the truth. From the very earliest point, when the Labour Party became a viable party of government in Britain, you have the leaders of the Labour Party, from Ramsay MacDonald onwards, groveling continuously to the British capitalist class and promising them that they will restrain the trade unions, that they will clamp down upon worker militancy, then that they are prepared to use the army against strikers. Now, when it came to the general strike of 1926, of course, the Labour leadership capitulated and sold out on it even quicker than the TUC General Council did, and they only lasted just over a week. And then we get, of course, to the high point of reformism, the period between 1945 to 1951. Now, I've talked about this extensively on the program before. You can go back into the archive and find the various shows that we've covered the Labour Party on, but I will confine myself here to saying this. The irony being that this ferociously anti-communist, pro-imperialist party owes its survival in terms of the British working class's ability to look past its many, many shortcomings and many, many crimes against the British working class and continue to vote for it for many generations after 1945, all owes its continued success in regard to this to that period of reform after World War II that, of course, saw the NHS created, the beginnings of, or at least a very extensive extension of welfare capitalism and of course the period where there was almost full employment and a continual growth in wages for a a certain period of time and this period of reform of course would not have been possible without the 
Bolshevik Revolution, the existence of the Soviet Union as a powerful workers' state at that time, and of course the heroic role played by the Soviet Union in World War II. Now this most bitterly anti-communist of parties, and again they were all anti-communists, no matter whether they said they were on the left or on the right of the party, this most anti-communist of parties would not have that period of success, that period it keeps drawing on, that historical memory where they were doing things that were favourable to the working class. None of that would have been possible without the Bolshevik Revolution and the successful period of industrialization, the success in World War II that the Soviet Union had. So when Keir Starmer says that he's in the tradition of the Labour Party and that he isn't a betrayal of it, he's in fact a continuation of it, all of that is completely correct. And he is completely in line with the traditions of the Labour Party. I believe that he'd use the army to break strikes just like Clement Attlee did just like Harold Wilson threatened to do, and just like Jim Callaghan threatened to do, and just like Tony Blair did with regard to the firefighters' strike in the early 2000s. So, Keir Starmer, completely in line with all of this, a imperialist, a militarist, a British bourgeois nationalist, a man who will be prepared to use the state to violently repress working-class action, and a man who would use the state to quash even the mildest of trade union action if it was demanded loudly enough by the capitalist class. So Keir Starmer is a man who stands firmly within the Labour Party tradition and to accuse him of betrayal or say that he's some sort of deviation from that, he's not. And neither was Tony Blair. Tony Blair was from well within the traditions of the Labour Party leaders. He was slightly more extreme in terms of his being open about... Uh, his worship of riches, his open desire for riches, his being proud of collaboration with big business, with the capitalist class. But all of that was very well established by previous Labour leaders. We're just talking a difference of rhetoric more than reality here. So the mythology that the Labour left has spun since the period of the Blair leadership that somehow this was all a deviation, that this wasn't a continuity, that Blair had formed a new party. They were actually doing his job for him because Blair's argument to the ruling class was, don't worry, this is a new party. There's no more of those awkward uh, militant types in here. We've started anew. Truth is, that was just branding, which is what Blair's talent really was. It was a party that continued to be led by these rabid pro-capitalist imperialist characters like Blair, who operated at all times in partnership with the trade union bureaucracy, whose reign over the Labour Party and over Britain would not have been possible without the active collaboration of the trade union leaders. The trade union leaders were the ones who kept signing the checks for the Labour Party, kept turning out the vote for the Labour Party, or trying to in the election, kept funding the Labour Party's election campaigns, kept sponsoring Labour MPs. Tony Blair would not have been able to do any of the things that he did, including, by the way, the Iraq war, had the trade unions pulled the plug on the Labour Party. And of course, the trade union leaders never did and never will. So his power base was the same as all the right-wing Labour leaders that came before him. He was just lying more about the fact that he was something new and different. He wasn't. He was the Labour Party right-wing, unconstrained, no longer needing to pay the slightest bit of attention to the pathetic characters on the Labour left, or more importantly, completely freed from 
pressure from the rank and file of the trade union movement following the Thatcher government's violent crushing of the union movement in the period of the great miners' strike of 84 to 85. So all that Blair is, does is a continuation of all of his predecessors, and as is Keir Starmer. So let's get that out of the way first. This man is not a betrayal of the Labour tradition. He's an absolute continuity candidate. Corbyn was the oddity in some respects. In many respects, he was a continuity candidate as well. But more on that later. So second point, Keir Starmer, of course, promises nothing. He promises, and this is from his latest speech, though it's basically the same he's been giving for almost three years now, which is that he can be trusted to be a man who does the bidding of the British capitalist class. That's why he's talking in his latest speech about being openly pro-business, and he's never going to stop being pro-business and wanting a partnership with business, which means that they're in partnership and the working class gets screwed by that partnership, in case you were wondering. And... Of course, his enthusiastic commitment to NATO, the Ukraine war, the drive towards creating a proxy war with the Chinese, which is, of course, what his wretched shadow foreign secretary, Mr. David Lammy, prominent expenses fiddler, uh, was saying in a speech I looked at the other day where he's promising to build the partnership with Japan, which means try and set up Japan to be the fall guy in a war against China. That's what that means. Keir Starmer is into all of that. And, of course... When it gets to the domestic policy, what does he promise? Well, he promises the same thing as the Conservative Party. He's making a lot of noise at the moment about, you know, save the NHS, which is, of course, what the Labour Party tries to run on every single time. and Often it doesn't work because millions of people just simply don't believe them for good reason. And it would be wise not to believe him this time either, given that the foul homunculus known as Wesley Streeting has promised that the privatization of the National Health Service will continue, which means more money funneled to the private sector. Keir Starmer wrote a Telegraph article recently where he wrote for the audience of uh, shareholders, which reads that newspaper, that the reform of the health service would continue, which means privatization will continue. He's making the case in that newspaper column that he wrote to the shareholders of the private health companies to not worry about their investments because their investments will be safe with him. He will continue the policy that Major began, that Blair took to much higher levels and Cameron and May and Johnson and Sunak have continued, which is, of course, selling off the health service, using it as a conveyor belt of money from the state to the private healthcare corporations. And he'll do that while screaming, save the NHS and getting some health service trade union leaders to cover his ass for him. And if you want more on that, go back and listen to the interview with Dr. Bob Gill that I did a couple of weeks ago. And he was talking there about how repeatedly under both Labour and Conservative governments, but especially Labour, the health service unions agree to turn a blind eye and cover for the Labour Party over their privatisation of the health service. Labour's 13 years in charge of uh, the government from 1997 to 2010 were, even in the medium term, a disaster for the National Health Service. All the results that they shout about, cutting down waiting lists, etc., all came at a very heavy medium to long-term cost regarding the destruction of services in terms of the provision of health services to local areas outside of city centres, the concentration of what was left inside big urban centres and the withdrawal of services from rural and suburban areas and, of course, the relentless privatisation of these services 
and the staff that go along with them. Labour sold off the real estate, sold off the services and indebted the NHS via the private finance initiative to the tune of hundreds of billions of pounds. That is a record that should be regarded as abysmal, but thanks to the complicity of the health service trade union leaders, they are able to portray themselves as still somehow being the party of the NHS. No, they're as much the party of selling off the NHS as the Conservatives are. It's just that some in the Conservative Party will be a bit more open about their intentions, like former Health Secretary Sajid Javid was recently when he was talking about bringing in health charges. He'll be more open about it. Streeting and Stam will be more underhanded about it, but the result will be the same. In the end, the result will be the same. So on health, nothing different. Same thing, different uh, advertising. When it comes to the issues regarding all the strikes that are going on at the moment, Keir Starmer has already said that he's not going to do inflation-busting pay increases. So essentially, we're in the same situation with regard to pay, particularly in the public sector, that the Tories are saying is the case now. And when it comes to other things, like will he repeal any of the laws against uh, solidarity action against secondary strikes? Uh, Will he repeal the myriad of anti-trade union laws that cover the balloting process? The answer is no on all of those things. He will probably, like Tony Blair did before him, boast about how Britain has the most restrictive anti-union laws in Europe. And he'll do that to a hall full of capitalists and the trade unions will still pay for his election costs, pay for the continuation of the Labour Party. Because the entire relationship between the trade union leaders and the hierarchy of the Labour Party is the same as it always has been, which is that the trade union leaders founded the Labour Party in collaboration with these uh, middle-class socialist groups like the Fabian Society in order that they could maintain their leadership over the working class and solidify that politically. Previously, they thought the way to do that was voting for and endorsing Liberal Party candidates. Then, when there was a wave of militancy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, they came around to the idea of a party of Labour, which would always be a party that was dominated by the union bureaucracy and these middle-class Fabian society types. And so it remains. Again, complete continuity from day one until now on that question. It's just the Fabian society types have become even more reactionary than they were over 120 years ago. So he promises nothing in terms of any difference on the predatory behavior, the ultra-aggressive militarist behavior overseas of British imperialism. He promises the same thing on the health service. He promises to retain the 40-plus year stagnation of the wages of the British working class. He won't do anything to actually make strikes more effective. And so what the hell is the point of any of this in terms of actually voting for the Labour Party? What are the British working class going to get out of a Labour Party government? And the answer that the Labour left and their defenders will tell you is that, oh, well, it's not perfect, but it'll mitigate the damage done by the Tories. Well, the question is how? Now, Blair was able to get away with a lot because he did increase public spending. And of course, that enabled a great deal of talk to be engaged in by the union leaders and by others who are interested in making excuses for him that somehow Blair was better than he appeared to be. 
But of course, a lot of that public spending went straight into the hands of private companies via NHS privatisation. It also went back into the pockets of corporations via things like the tax credit system, which essentially acts as a subsidy for low wages, where the state makes up the difference in terms of making the income that a lot of people at the lower end of the wages spectrum in the working class have via tax credits because the companies that employ them don't pay them enough. And Blair and Brown spent billions upon billions, and the government still spends this money now, subsidizing these low-wage employers. Starmer will continue to do that, of course. He won't address the central problem of why there are low wages in Britain, and he will continue to push us to be a more and more low-wage economy via the state making up the difference somehow or just being able to use or try to use the position of British imperialism in the world market to reduce costs over household essentials, as the British imperialists have done before. Whether they'll be able to do that is another question entirely, given the weakening position of British and American imperialism these days. So, to reiterate, this is a man who entirely stands in the tradition of the Labour Party leaders who came before him, but given that British capitalism is in a more weakened and degenerated state now, promises even less than those who came before him, and yet you are going to get a large number of the British left going around telling people that, well, you got to vote Labour because we've got to keep those Tories out, the Tories that Starmer specifically agrees with on 90% of issues, and won't now, as I've covered previously, even go after them aggressively, even on an issue such as the blatant corruption over the uh, PPE scandal, which was when they spent untold billions personal protective equipment during the covid years and a lot of this was useless couldn't be used or was just chucked in a warehouse somewhere and a lot of those contracts went of course to people linked to the conservative party an open goal you might think but because keir starmer's whole approach is to take power in a way which doesn't disturb british capitalism in the slightest you won't even go after them for an issue of corruption which you would have thought even a skilled political opportunist would be able to use, but of course he doesn't want to do that. He wants to coast into power, making as few ripples as possible, because that is the demand of British capitalism. Keir Starmer can be Prime Minister, but he can't be Prime Minister in a way that disturbs business as usual. Because, as has been said before on this program, British capitalism exists on ever-growing piles of debt, or ever-growing bubbles of debt, and that debt has to be serviced and it has to be kept ticking over so that it may never be paid off, but the confidence trick has to keep going in that the holders of that debt have to believe that one day someone will pay it off or at least there'll be payments made on it. And that trick has to keep going. And of course, one of the reasons why they wanted to get rid of Liz Truss back in October last year was, of course, that she disrupted that system in an incompetent and cack-handed way and threatened to undermine the faith that international investors have in the government debt of Britain. There were other things as well, but that was the central part of it. She was undermining the faith in the British government's ability to service its debt. And again, bourgeois economics now is mainly faith-based, so if you believe in it, it becomes true at least in the short term. And if you stop believing in it, then the whole thing falls to pieces. So Keir Starmer wants to attain power in the smoothest way possible, causing the fewest disruptions to business as usual, and then he'll be allowed to become Prime Minister by the ruling class. Well, what a proud day that'll be for him. 
Incidentally, it's funny, of course, that Keir Starmer keeps describing himself as a factory worker's son, when, of course, it was his father that owned the factory. But that's just a standard lie that many politicians engage in in Britain. And I would guess that it would be the same would be true in the United States as well. Always portray yourself as having a more humble background than you actually have. So that's Starmer, a man who is open about promising nothing. But of course, the union leaders will continue to cover for him anyway, because they've done it for everybody from Ramsay MacDonald onwards. Why would they not do it for him? So this leads to a question that is even more important than the fate of one particularly miserable pile of pig manure in a suit known as Keir Starmer, which is, well, if the Labour Party is finished, if it is a vehicle that can do nothing good for the working class in Britain at all, then where the hell should we go now? What is the future? And of course, there have been many attempted answers at that. There is, of course, the perpetual idea of setting up a new version of the Labour Party or a better version of the Labour Party or a replacement for the Labour Party. And of course, the problem for that project is, well, the entire basis upon which the Labour Party was formed was a marriage between the middle-class reformers and the trade union bureaucracy, and it was done in that way in order to keep a firm grip on working-class struggle between those two forces. And so it remains. And, of course, it rested on the idea that you could reform piecemeal British capitalism, either you could reform it to socialism, as the Labour left have always insisted, everybody from James Maxton onwards insisted, or that you could do certain reforms to mitigate the harms that capitalism did, which is more of the labour rights argument. All of them, of course, were agreed upon the fact that the way to reform was through the most holy of institutions, the British House of Commons, which both the labour right and the labour left and their backers in the trade union leaderships all agreed was the proper way to pursue change. It was through his or Her Majesty's Parliament. And this, of course, is what Ralph Miliband, Ed's father, who was uh, much more wise than his wretched sons, wrote about in a book called Parliamentary Socialism in the early 1960s. first version of it was from 1964. And Miliband makes the argument in that book that what the Labour Party is committed to, over and above everything else, was more the parliamentary side of it than the socialist side of it. Now, I have fundamental disagreements with Miliband's actual politics, but the book itself is very much worth reading because what he reveals is that when it comes to a choice between actually fighting for socialism and honouring the great and hallowed parliamentary traditions of the House of Commons, then, well, the entire Labour Party, left and right, always chooses the parliamentary tradition over everything else. And it is this absolutely fanatical pursuit of bourgeois respectability, a pursuit of electoralism, a pursuit of parliamentarism. This is what defines the Labour Party. It defines all of them, whether they're on the right, whether it's Tony Blair or Jeremy Corbyn, they're both committed to the parliamentary road. The road might have different destinations, but it is still the same road they are on. And so when we revisit the question that we asked earlier, which is, if there's to be a replacement for the Labour Party, then, well, what should it be? Are we looking to recreate the new version for the 21st century of the Labour Party, including the 
fanatical dedication to bourgeois parliamentarism, because that's what a lot of people have sought to do over the years, and it's all gone back to ending in failure. And you have to ask the question, well, given that Parliament as an institution is widely despised and distrusted by huge numbers of the British working class now, and for very good reason, then why on earth try to pursue this parliamentary road? Why go down that route at this time when the state of British capitalism is such that reforms, serious reforms pushed through Parliament are simply not on the cards right now? British capitalism is drowning in debt. It is not productive. The rate of investment is pathetically low because, of course, the rate of profit for British capitalism is incredibly low. And it doesn't even have the industrial capacity whereby you could rapidly invest to create full employment, such as you had in the 40s, the 50s, or even into the 60s. Now we have this service-based economy, which is hardwired into an international imperialist system as much as it ever was, but has become ever more dependent upon uh, cheap imports in order that the increasingly large difference between the wages of the British working class and the cost of living can be made up on by using Britain's position in the world market to bring in cheaper imports that cover the essentials of life. And that's an old trick that the British ruling class has been using for many, many decades, if not centuries now. But the lack of ability to reform, the lack of ability to take the social democratic road is rooted in the parlous state of British capitalism itself, which is why, or one of the reasons why, Keir Starmer can and will do nothing. And so therefore, if you're going to start some sort of social democratic laborist alternative, a better version of labor, a better version of Corbynism, then what are you pursuing exactly? Are you trying to ultimately get into government, at which point you will be confronted by the immovable barriers that are always put down by the British bourgeoisie and the fact that British capitalism itself is fundamentally unstable, irreformable? How are you going to pursue that? And it matters, this question, because when you start pursuing the parliamentary road, when you start pushing the idea that you are going to form a government at some point, that you are going to manage British capitalism on behalf of the capitalist class or try to bring Britain together as a nation, as the Labour left often said it was going to do in the past. And you'll end up, of course, sounding like Keir Starmer, promising partnership with business, promising to restrain the militants in the trade union movement, because this is where the parliamentary road always leads to. If you participate in these bourgeois, supposedly democratic institutions, they are wholly, of course, bourgeois institutions, really, then what you're doing is you are circumscribing your tactics. You are, pl you are telling the British working class to place their faith in these institutions again. And uh, we're going to have another long march through them, comrades. And on the other side, well, we'll really sort out those capitalists once we've uh, followed all the rules nicely and sworn fealty to his majesty to be his government and then we'll introduce the socialism bill and it'll all be okay being slightly flippant there but only to emphasize the ridiculousness of this proposition so it is not just the labor party which is useless and needs to be discarded and doesn't deserve a single vote at the next election neither do the conservatives by the way 
But it is the very nature of that party that is at fault. And it is because the nature of British capitalism has become more degenerate that the Labour Party itself looks weaker and worse in that you could argue when British capitalism was, relatively speaking, flying high in 1910 or even in the weakened state it was in in 1945, that you could reform it, that you could put in place an industrial plan to put the nation back to work. Now, of course, British capitalism is just dominated by endless speculation, is kept afloat via endless bailouts from state funds, and is completely parasitic. So what are you going to do with it? The only answer is, of course, to dispose of it, to overthrow it, to bring it down. And are you really going to do that via marching through Parliament again? Now, some would argue, of course, that, oh, no, well, we're going to have uh, movements outside of Parliament. We're going to have, as Corbyn's defenders used to say, we're going to have a, it's going to be a movement of social movements in this uh, bizarre language that they use, which sounded like they were running an NGO seminar. Well, I'll return to my point here, which is that it's not just the Labour Party. It's the whole concept of Labourism. It is the whole concept of parliamentary socialism, as Ralph Miliband identified it as, which needs to go. We can't go around now claiming that socialism is going to come through passing acts of parliament. It is just a non-starter. It did not happen even when the circumstances were most propitious for it to happen, when the circumstances were the most advantageous for that approach to actually work. It did not and could not work then. Again, to go back to a fundamental point made by Lenin in State and Revolution 106 years ago now, you can't reform the bourgeois state. You cannot. You can make certain changes to it. The bourgeoisie themselves will bend if they need to under extreme pressure. But you had to have a real combination of forces to bring that extreme pressure to bear. And those forces just simply are, for the most part, not there anymore. They do not exist anymore. But even with the reforms that were put in place by the Labour Party government of Attlee, that ran from 45 to 51, even that didn't really change the nature of British capitalism. Yes, they did put in place some reforms that were advantageous to the working class, but part of that was done via increased exploitation of the working class itself. It was often the working class via increased productivity of labour and, of course, increased consumption taxes that was paying for a lot of these reforms. The other part of it was, of course, vicious imperialism. Remember, it was the Labour government under Attlee that launched the war against the communists in what was then called Malaya, and of course was an enthusiastic proponent of the increasing exploitation of the colonial world. As Tony Norfield points out in his book on the City of London, Harold Wilson, who was then on the left of the party, was very much as a junior cabinet minister in favour of increasing the exploitation of the land in Kenya in order to generate more profits that could be then invested back in Britain. So this is who the Labour Party are and always have been. It's just getting more difficult for them to engage in this kind of imperialist practice now, given that more and more nations are realising that they shouldn't deal with the British at all, uh, because, of course, uh, dealing with the British government only brings debt and exploitation. To return to the question of parliamentarism, of course, parliamentarism, the pursuit of power via the means of winning elections under capitalism and a dedication to a strategy of pursuing power via means that are 
wholly within bourgeois legality, then of course it fundamentally changes you. Now, you can look beyond the Labour Party to the communist parties of France and Italy and other places to show what that will do to parties that even started out as being at least nominally revolutionary parties. By the time the 1950s had rolled around and by the 1960s at the very latest, you see that the major communist parties had all basically become social democratic operations who were completely committed to the maintenance of bourgeois legality at all times and no matter what the cost and just to pursuing the attaining of power via entirely legal and bourgeois democratic methods. This, of course, proved absolutely fatal. And it will prove absolutely fatal for anything that seeks to replace the Labour Party in this country, or indeed any other country, dedicating itself to this parliamentarist method. It will only lead you down the same route as the Labour Party in this country, the old Second International Social Democratic Parties, and the old Communist Parties. Because what does parliamentarism do? It creates, and this is certainly true in the case of the Labour Party in Britain, if you are successful, it creates a caste of parliamentary representatives that become more and more divorced from the day-to-day life of the working class, who grow apart from the working class, even if they originally, that is, the individual representatives, came from working class backgrounds. In the case of the Labour Party, what you got was a group that regarded the, and still regard the Labour Party, as their personal property, that is, the MPs in Parliament, who are paid three or four times as much as the average worker in Britain, and this goes for the left as well as the right. And, of course, this is all quite deliberate on the part of British capitalism. It's good to invite the representatives of the nominal party of the workers into the club, to reward them handsomely, to incorporate them into uh, bourgeois structures, because the people who create strategies for the ruling class in Britain understand very well, though they will deny it in public, that socialization maketh the person. So even if somebody comes from a working class background, you put them in the British Parliament these days anyway, on a salary of 80 plus thousand pounds a year, you stroke their ego and put them on all these committees, make them feel very important, make sure that they're completely disconnected from the working class base that sent them there in the first place. And what you will find is they become rapidly, anyway, very loyal servants of the existing order because their income and their future is now linked organically to it. They are no longer part of the working class. They are removed from it and become class traitors very, very quickly, or just seek to join the bourgeois or the upper petty bourgeoisie. You look at how many working-class Labour MPs have walked down that road. It's a very, very long list, many of whom, by the way, ended up wearing the ermine of the House of Lords. So pursuing a path to power via bourgeois parliaments is disastrous in many different ways. It will be part of the transformation of your party, from being one of the working class to being one that is only dedicated to preserving bourgeois legality. And once you get to that point, then it's only a short jump to preserving the sacred rights of private property, 
which is, of course, the road that all the second and the old third international parties have gone down bit by bit by bit. And this was obvious even in the period of the early 20th century, when, of course, the theories of reformism, as outlined by the German Social Democrat, Eduard Bernstein, got so thoroughly and correctly demolished by Lenin and Rosa Luxemburg and others. And what the subsequent decade and the implosion of the Second International at the dawn of World War I proved was just how rotten these parties that were so highly and uh, successfully represented within the bourgeois parliaments of Austria, Germany, France, Britain, how much they had been incorporated into the bourgeois state, how much they had become thoroughly embourgeoisified in their practices by 1914. And of course, this was, again, identified by Lenin in uh, Imperialism, the High Stage of Capitalism, as being the part of the working class, or at least a section of it, that had become hopelessly uh, bought off by imperialism. And this certainly goes for the trade union leaders and the leaders of the social democratic parties. All of this is part of how the capitalist class changed and adapted their tactics for dealing with the first, the socialists of the second international, and then the communists of the third international. They were dealt with in the same way. Yes, there was repression, espionage, the usual tricks of the state, but their most reliable tool was these parties' reliance on bourgeois legality and parliamentarism. So if we're not going to rely on parliamentarism, well then, is it ever justifiable to run for an elected office under capitalism? And that's a difficult question, but it comes down to a question of what is going to take the class struggle forward at any particular moment in time. Is standing for an elected office, be it on the local level or the national level, is that something which is actually going to advance the cause of the struggles of the working class? Is it something which is going to benefit the communist party that you are in? Is it something which is going to be beneficial to any of those things? Or is it just going to be a turn towards opportunism? Or are we just doing it because it's just something that everybody does? It's a matter of habit. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves in Britain, and you can apply this, I think, to a certain extent in the United States as well, is, well, is it the right time when communists should be engaging in parliamentary elections, running for local office, that kind of thing. And in the British case, I have to answer that the view I take on that is no. And the reason I give for that is because we are at a stage in Britain where there has been a successful counter-revolutionary process underway for my entire lifetime, over 35 years now. And it probably goes back even further than that to the period of the Labour government of 74 to 79, where you got a very deliberate policy adopted by Wilson, Callaghan, and then taken further by Thatcher, of destroying class consciousness, atomizing the working class, of course, destroying many industries, destroying the most powerful trade unions, and making sure that the memory of class struggle was as buried as they could possibly make it. And after years of that, we face a situation where, yes, there is a slow re-emergence of class struggle in new areas. So, for instance, the Amazon workers in Britain are now starting the process of unionization and, of course, have held their first strike most, most recently. 
And that's obviously a positive development. But we're on the first step of what will be a very, very long road back. And the priority, from my point of view, is not to pursue trying to win a council seat in one of the major urban authorities or even one of the smaller ones or trying to stand for parliament. What's actually needed at this stage is work to actually increase the number of workers across Britain who become more conscious of their class position. And what I mean by that is I'll go back again to the definitions used in The Poverty of Philosophy by Marx, where he talks about the difference between a class in itself and a class for itself. The class in itself, of course, is the first stage of class development, where, of course, a worker exists within a certain set of relations between capital on the one hand and labor on the other, exists within the labor part of that, and is in a position of being exploited, of having his or her labor exploited for the purposes of the extraction of surplus value by the capitalist class, but is not aware of those contradictions as yet, or is not in a at a point where they can engage in class struggle uh, with the capitalist class as yet, because the level of consciousness is just simply not there. That's where a huge number of working class people in Britain exist right now, where they've not engaged in any class struggle in their their entire lives. They often do not see themselves as being engaged in a class struggle, though as time goes on and British capitalism clamps down ever further on wages and conditions, many of them will become aware of it. But that's the situation that the years post-Thatcher have delivered us to, which is atomization, a chronic lack of class consciousness, and many of the British working class just being in a a situation where they are a class in itself. Now, the next level of development of class consciousness, according to Marx, is being a class for itself, which is that the working class has gone through the process of class formation and is now aware of the contradictions of its position, aware of the fact that they are in a struggle with the bosses, with the employers, with the owners of industry, and are prepared to actually join in that struggle as a class, as a collective of workers. And that's the next level up. Now, in the British case, many workers are actually at that level already. But for huge areas, particularly in the private sector, the working class remains at that first level, a class in itself. So surely what will be more beneficial for the development of a communist politics in Britain today would be the, as a first step, the development of class consciousness amongst the working class to a much higher level so that class struggle expands, so that more workers are drawn into class struggle and start to develop not just a consciousness of their own situation as workers in an antagonistic relationship with the employers, aware of the fact that their interests do not coincide with those of the employers, that they are not all in this together, as David Cameron used to say. And that would be an enormous step forward if that level of class consciousness was to increase. And that should be one of the principal tasks of communists today, working to, in whatever way we can, increase that level of class consciousness. But one of the ways in which you would do so would be, of course, 
engaging in political education projects that actually develop more working class militants or the organic intellectuals of the working class, as Antonio Gramsci referred to them many years ago, in order that the layer that used to exist in this country 40 years ago or so, that was comprehensively stamped out of working class, grassroots level leaders, worker communists, if you will, who understand the class struggle, understand the nature of class antagonisms, understand the limitations of trade unionism, the role that the union leaders play, all of these very important lessons which are just not widely known at the moment, and can take that knowledge and impart it to other members of the class. And that, to my mind, is the most important thing at this moment in time. It is not taking a hit-and-hope run for a parliamentary seat or a council seat. It is doing work within the working class itself, encouraging the growth of real class consciousness again, encouraging and aiding in the political education process for new working class militants across all sections of industry in Britain. And this is the work that, if we started to do it more seriously, would be something that the working class would not only benefit from enormously, but it would be something that the ruling class would genuinely fear. It is not just out of spite or meanness that they relentlessly sought to stamp out the layer of working-class rank-and-file leaders that used to exist in the trade unions so many years ago. It was because the ruling class were responding sensibly from their class perspective in identifying the real threats. The real threat to them was not the trade union leaders. Uh, it never was, and the ruling class knows that. They'll run hate campaigns against like Mick Lynch or um, some of the better trade union leaders like the uh, late Bob Crow from the Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers Union or Arthur Scargill, who was the leader of the National Union of Mine Workers from the uh, early 80s onwards and was, the, of course, the leader of the NUM during the Great Miners' Strike of 84 to 85. But nine out of ten trade union leaders they have no trouble with and most of them will end up in the House of Lords or with a knighthood. So they understood very well that it wasn't the union leaders that was the problem. It was the union militants, as Thatcher used to call them. It was the politically educated men and women at the base level of the unions and sometimes in uh, elected offices of the unions who did have that higher level of political understanding, who were trusted within the workplace, who would agitate for strike action, who would explain the industrial and political issues to the other members of their class who they worked with or who were in their community. It was that layer that Thatcher talks about in her memoirs, actually. She talks about it over and over again. We've got to take on the militants. We've got to stand up and stand with the responsible trade union leaders. She uses that phrase a lot, responsible trade union leaders. So it was that layer that they feared. Now, of course, being Leninists, we understand that the trade union level consciousness, even at its most advanced as we had here in Britain in the 70s and into the early 80s, was not enough, of course, to dispose of British capitalism because you needed a revolutionary party to develop that trade union level consciousness onto the level of a revolutionary consciousness. And such a party did not exist in Britain at the time. There were small, isolated groups who tried to fill that void, but 
In reality, since the turn of the Communist Party toward reformism, it had been a void that got ever bigger as the Communist Party's appeal to the working class uh, militant layers became less and less as they just became a feeder club, essentially, for the Labour Party. And I want to conclude on this point as well, which is that the role of the Communist Party in Britain and elsewhere, but particularly in Britain, because unlike in France or Italy, the Communist Party here never became that big. And part of the reason why it didn't was that it, after really after 1945, it became ever more just a essentially a cheerleading act for the Labour Party. And this was, of course, embodied in the wholly wretched and contemptible document known as the British Road to Socialism. And the inherent anti-communism of the entire Labour Party, not just the right, but also the left, is also visible in the relationship that the Communist Party of Great Britain used to have with them. You see, the communists went from being a revolutionary party in the 1930s to becoming an ever more reformist one all the way through the 40s and 50s to the point where in the 60s they are just acting as essentially a think tank for the Labour left. And the Labour left and even some members of the Labour right at various points were prepared to buy the Daily Worker which became the Morning Star, the daily newspaper of the old CP and also speak on communist platforms enjoying Communist Party campaigns, Labour left particularly did that. But as part of that bargain, the question of revolution was dropped. The question of the need for the working class to take power and institute the dictatorship of the proletariat was dropped. The question of the need to smash the bourgeois state, that was dropped. Until eventually you got the com- a Communist Party in Britain which was almost indistinguishable from the left of the Labour Party. And the more it became indistinguishable from the left of the Labour Party, the more its numbers shrank, its influence shrank, till it became basically just a rump that was largely resident within the left bureaucracy of the trade unions. And this, of course, is the bargain that the Communist Party made. They were invited into, increasingly, the union bureaucracy and invited to work with the left of the Labour Party as long as they ceased to be communists. And again, that is part of the fatal bargain that was struck post-World War II in that the leaders of the Communist Party started to believe that British capitalism could be reformed away. And in the end, that proved an absolutely fatal mistake because when we did reach a time when working class struggle rapidly increased, which was towards the end of the 1960s, when, of course, British capitalism lurches into a profitability crisis, the employers go on the attack, attacking wages and trying to force them down or hold wages down. And at a moment when you get the advanced layers of the working class in Britain looking outside of the Labour Party for certain and looking for something else to get involved with, looking for political leadership, what did you get? you got a communist party which was basically just telling them to go back and vote Labour. And this proved, again, fatal for the struggle in the 1970s into the 1980s. And so when looking back at all of this, not only must we be clear that there can be absolutely no question that anybody should give a single solitary vote to Keir Starmer, and the propaganda that will come from the soft left in Britain and the trade union leaders will be all about 
harm reduction and mitigation and the usual garbage these people come out with, ignoring, of course, the fact that British capitalism descends ever further into crisis and that Keir Stammel will, as their loyal servant, be relentlessly attacking the working class, just the same as the Tories would. But furthermore, you have to ask the question, what use is a strong Labour government going to do the working class, given that we know that Starmer will be attacking the working class? It would be far better in terms of the development of class consciousness in this country to have governments, either Labour or Conservative, or some unholy amalgam of various different parties, that are weak than that are strong. It would be better to have a bourgeois government which is shaky, which can't carry out the dramatic number of attacks that they will be urged to carry out by British capitalism on workers. It would be far better to have a government which can barely command a majority in the House of Commons, which is widely distrusted and despised. That would be a better alternative than a Labour government either in a coalition with the Liberals or with a massive majority that can do whatever the hell it likes, which has the trade union leaders covering for it and is able to carry out its attacks on the working class under this veil of harm reduction or lesser of two evils shit that is always given by these people when they want to justify doing something horrific. So we need to reject all of that. But we also need to reject the absolutely fatal curse of laborism, of the traditions of the Labour Party. All of these have helped leaders to this point. The traditions of the Labour Party, I will reiterate this point again, Keir Starmer stands absolutely in the traditions of the Labour Party, but those traditions are anti-working class, anti-communist, profoundly reactionary, pro-imperialist, and all of those traditions need to be thrown over the side. And as part of that goes parliamentarism as well. Whatever we build next cannot be something that is wedded to the bourgeois state, that is wedded to parliamentarism and bourgeois legality in the way that the Labour Party and other social democratic parties have been. All of these, of course, does not mean that you run around like a teenage anarchist saying, fuck them and their law, tempting though that might be. But the absolute pathological commitment to bourgeois democracy and the bourgeois state that all of the social democratic parties had and then all of the communist parties developed has to be understood and has to be rejected as something which is fatal for developing class consciousness and fatal for developing a real communist party. So I will conclude on that point. I'll be back again next week with a return to regular programming in terms of the coverage of the Ukraine war. So until then, thank you for listening, and I'll be speaking to you again very soon. Sunlight shines, those pits, they're black as hell. In mud and slime, they do their time, it's Paddy's prison cell. And they curse the day they try.